In the names of God, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. Amen. Please be seated. Um, it's very nice to be back after more travel, actually, than I care to make um, uh, since the turn of the year. And just so we can get it out of the way, I slipped on the ice uh, on Monday morning uh, that was below three inches of snow and undetected by me or the dog, um, and I did a perfect one-point landing on my left arm. But I say this to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who treat you badly. Lent is hard upon us. Lent is hard upon us. We can think about that sentence in both its possible meanings. Lent does indeed begin soon. Ash Wednesday is a mere 10 days from now. In terms of time, it is indeed hard upon us. And it is also a difficult season for us. How is it, in the present moment, we think about a season of penitence and prayer, a season of confession and absolution? In our time, these ideas and concepts seem almost quaint, a holdover from an earlier era. It all feels a bit medieval, or at the very least, pre-enlightenment. I was raised in a household where we went to church every Sunday, ate fish every Friday, said grace before every meal, and prayers together as a family every night. Lent, for us as children, was something of a competitive sport. We each sought to give up something very dear to us and then quietly brag about this as Lent approached. One of us children might give up chocolate and proudly announce that. Then one of my cousins would chime in and announce they were giving up not just chocolate, but all forms of candy. To which yet another member of the band of cousins would add all forms of candy and all sodas, and on it went. We felt profoundly virtuous in these forms of abstinence. My grandfather would observe this competition with his usual bemused and affectionate expression. When we asked him what he might be giving up for Lent, he would look thoughtful for a moment. Well, this year, I thought perhaps kohlrabi. <laughs> or maybe alligator wrestling. This would reduce the younger ones among us to gales of laughter and to some of the older of us, perhaps a bit of contemplation and reflection. My grandfather's lessons in theology were always light and deft, but penetrating and available to those who would listen. Unfortunately, I think for many of us as adults, there's still a residual tendency to think about Lent as a time in which we need to give up something. I think in today's gospel lesson, we hear something different. The lesson we hear from Rabbi Jesus today follows immediately after last week's gospel story. Last week, we heard the first part of the Sermon on the Plain, which includes a version of the Beatitudes and the so-called Curses. This is a form of writing with which the Jewish audiences of Luke's story would have been very familiar. It is an enumeration of blessings and curses on humanity, divine compensation and retribution. This form of the consideration of human behavior has deep roots in Hebrew scripture. We see this in the books of Moses, in Jeremiah, and in Isaiah. What follows this week, however, represents a very different literary form. It is an enunciation by Jesus of what constitutes virtue. To the original audiences who would have heard or read this message, an admonition to virtue of some sort or another would not have been unfamiliar. The contemplation of virtue and what constituted a virtuous life permeated the Hellenized Mediterranean world in which Luke worked and wrote. 
but it has more to do with Greek, classic Greek philosophy and its structure than it does with the Hebrew scriptural tradition. Given the rather elegant Greek in which Luke is written, it is quite reasonable to assume that most of his early audiences would have been familiar with classic Greek philosophy, at the very least in passing. That philosophy frequently included considerations of virtue. Plato, for example, had argued for four cardinal virtues, wisdom, temperance, courage, and justice. These were the necessary elements for a life of balance and happiness and necessary for the smooth functioning of the republic he imagined. Aristotle, in the Nicomachean Ethics, presents a more complex picture of virtue. He argued that virtue existed as a balance point between poles of excess or deficiency. Modesty, for example, was the balance point between shyness, an undesirable excess of modesty, and shamelessness, an undesirable deficiency of modesty. Aristotle named 12 essential virtues, courage, temperance, generosity, magnificence, magnanimity, proper pride, truthfulness, wittiness, friendliness, modesty, and righteous indignation. The last, alas, is something with which I am well acquainted. It is important for us to remember that a consideration of virtue was fundamentally a consideration of how to live in community. Virtue teaches us how to treat one another in a manner which permits community in the first place. Hermits have no need of virtue. And thus, behind every system of virtue is a society, a community which is being imagined. The virtues espoused tell us what kind of community that might be. Plato imagined his republic. Aristotle imagined a community presided over by a philosopher king. This passage from Luke, which we hear today, exists in that same continuum of the consideration of virtue and what constitutes a virtuous life. But it takes all these classic Greek notions of balance and harmony and throws them out the window. Jesus advocates for a very different kind of virtue to be practiced by those who would follow him and become part of the kingdom. The practice of these virtues is particularly important for those of us who are in the second category of people described last week. Not the blessed humble, the poor, the hungry, and the grieving. We are the people about whom lament is offered. Woe to those who are now rich, well-fed, well-bred, happy, fat, and sassy. Those are for whom the Rabbi Jesus laments. Those who he points out are among the privileged of this current moment. People like you and me. Jesus, in this passage, offers us a way out of the path of woe, which he outlined in the passage we heard last week. But his path makes no sense in the world of classic virtues, the world of harmony, the universe of temperance. We live in a difficult moment. It appears that tyrants prosper. Jesus knew such a time as well. It appears that mean-spiritedness, rancor, and oppression are on the rise. Jesus knew such a time as well. It appears that the cynical manipulation of ordinary people by the wealthy and powerful is being used to maintain a brutal status quo. Jesus knew such a time as well. His answer, which we hear today, is an astonishing invitation to leap headlong into another way of living that would seem foolish in times such as he and we know. If Lent is anything, it might be a good time not to forego something, but rather to take on something. I would invite us all, I would challenge us all, to consider this passage and pick just one of the virtues that Jesus espouses 
and practice it earnestly and wholeheartedly for the next 40 days. I think it could be any of them, actually. But think about choosing one and living into it as fully as you can. Love your enemies. What a difficult admonition that is in times as fractured and polarized as we now live. We have always been plagued as a society by a sense of the other. But these days, this feeling appears to have accelerated to a malignant degree. What if, just for the next 40 days, we try to kindle feelings of compassion for people with whom we profoundly disagree? What would that look like? What might we look like? What might our poor, battered republic look like? Do good to those who hate you. What if our response to those who wish us ill were not to escalate recriminations and the infliction of pain, but instead to wish as much as our hearts will allow us to do them well? What if our response to people who live with shuttered factories and empty Main Street storefronts and who respond to this with Confederate battle flags and torchlight parades was to offer them sincere help in the same way we do so readily in parts of the global south? What would that world look like? Bless those who curse you. There's another director of a child neurology training program in this country with whom I am in profound intellectual disagreement about the future of our profession and what training for it should look like. Whenever this has been discussed at our national meetings, he has invariably veered towards ad hominem remarks and mocking condescension. It has been very hard not to engage, and I sometimes failed to resist that temptation. Recently, on a blog post in our small world, he mentioned that he was just waiting for me and my ilk to die off so things could move ahead to a better future unburdened by dinosaurs. I am certain most of us here today have had a similar experience in our workplaces. What if I spent this Lent not imagining another witty repost, but instead just thanked him publicly for the passion with which he cares for our collective future? What would that do to the little tempest in our little teapot? Give to everyone who asks you. Most of my adult life, I've worked in urban sections of the city of Boston. I'm sure that's true for many people here today as well. As part of that, my daily experience is being met by panhandlers. For many years, this represented a sort of moral dilemma for me. Should I give them something? Should I not? What will will they do with the money I give them? Giving them money could be something not in their best interest. Many seem to be struggling with addiction. Many seem to be struggling with mental health issues. What if they use the money for alcohol or drugs? Was it responsible for me to give such people money, especially as a physician? One year, reflecting on this passage in scripture, I experienced an immense liberation. The instructions here are exceptionally clear. Give to everyone who begs from you. No conditions, no litmus test, no measure of whether the person begging is a member of the deserving poor, just instructions to give money to anyone who asks for this. This, I realized, had nothing to do with my judgment of the person asking me for money. It had everything to do with me and my willingness to follow God into the astonishing generosity of this universe. From an existential point of view, I cannot and probably should not know the inner life of the person asking me for money. What I do know, what I can know, is my own inner state. And I am being invited into a position of radical generosity, into a very small taste of what God must feel like when God looks at me. I have been given immense gifts, my very life, the extraordinary and completely undeserved love given to me by my wife, 
the blessing of our children, and meaningful work which contributes to the common good. All this I was given without regard to my deserving it. All this was given without stipulation about how I would use it. And so I have found small moments of such epiphanies when I follow that command to merely give. I suppose that the world we imagine in these little vignettes could appear hopelessly naive and quite unrealistic. After all, the world is a harsh place. But sometimes this poor lonely rock we farm so stubbornly gives rise to people who are willing to look that naive. And when we watch them, we realize how tough-minded this set of virtues Jesus describes actually is. Gandhi, after all, used the moral force he saw in these virtues to liberate an entire subcontinent. The Reverend Martin Luther King used this same force to bend the arc of history just a bit closer to justice. As Father Michael Lapsley pointed out, if Nelson Mandela had emerged from prison and said, now it's our turn, South Africans would have died by the millions. Mandela chose not to say that. So I think this particular collection of admonitions from Jesus is among the most subversive in our scripture. It undermines everything on which empires are ultimately founded. Fear of the other. The suspicion that if you don't grab what you think you deserve now, someone else will. The cynical manipulation of the worst parts of our nature by tyrants. Instead, this passage invites us to participate in the reckless, profligate, incomprehensible generosity of the Almighty. As Jesus reminds us, the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And I have only to look in the mirror every morning to recognize that person. So what if we all chose just one of the virtues recommended by Jesus in this passage? What if, for just the next 40 days, you chose one of these and lived into it as fully as you could? Pick one, perhaps the one with, to which you are most drawn, perhaps the one which intrigues you most, better yet, perhaps the one that frightens you the most. Then watch where it leads you and listen. But I say this to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who treat you badly. Amen.